2 Corinthians refers to it as the new creation. When Jesus stepped onto the scene, we saw human nature and divine nature blended, brought together irrevocably in the one person of Jesus Christ. And when he rose from the dead, he didn't shed humanity and divinity goes back to the right hand of the Father, but that person of Jesus, fully man and fully God, rose from the dead and the Bible says there is now one mediator standing between you and God and that is the man, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. So the story of the blood covenant is just full of revelation, full of of clutter clearing insight that'll just release avenues for your faith and your joy as you walk with the Lord. This morning's message is entitled Mephibosheth. Aren't you glad you name your kids Hank, uh, David, or whatever? Mephibosheth, how many of you know who Mephibosheth is? couple of you. All right. Well, good. You're going to find out about not only this guy Mephibosheth, but one of the most beautiful, truly liberating stories in the Bible that illustrate and depict the power of the blood covenant. I'm going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 9. When I'm finished, our altar call this morning is going to be the Lord's Supper. We're going to share communion together. 2 Samuel chapter 9, there's 13 verses. I'm going to read all 13 of them. This is the story of Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of the first king of Israel, Saul. So if you know a little bit about Jonathan, you know perhaps that uh, he and David became fast and best friends and just loved each other as brothers and made a covenant. And we're going to hear about that this morning. So Jonathan was King Saul's son. And David, of course, we know the story of David. David was King Saul's kind of adopted son. Um, once, once Saul saw David show up on the battlefield against Goliath, he wanted to have David in his in his, uh, in his uh, home and, and wanted him around him. And so he brought him into his home. And when he and Jonathan met, David and Jonathan made a covenant together. And uh, so with that little bit of background, let's begin reading. Verse 1, 2 Samuel chapter 9. One day David asked, he's become king at this point. Saul's died, Jonathan died, both the same day in the same battle. David has ascended to the throne. Some time has passed. One day David asked, Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? the king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, Is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons still lives. He is crippled, however, in both his feet. Where is he, the king asked. He's in Lodabar. And you'll hear a little bit about this place, this 
village called Lodabar a little later on. But Ziba says he's in Lodabar at the home of Machir, the son of Emil. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. And his name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. David said, greetings, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. And then David said, don't be afraid. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather, King Saul. And you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba again and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to King Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him, to produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my side at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. servants. And Ziba replied, Yes, my lord the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table, like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth also had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both his feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Let's fill this in with a little character sketch, little character background. There are a few characters in here that if, if, um, if you already know about them, then bear with me. But for those that may not, let me give you a little bit of uh, information. And uh, we're going to talk about Saul, going to talk about Jonathan and find out who Mephibosheth is and what's going on with him. But first, let me share with you a little bit about Mephibosheth's condition. Mephibosheth is mentioned one other place in the scriptures. It's in 2 Samuel chapter 4, where it talks about why he was living in Lodabar and why King David didn't know that Jonathan's son was alive. Jonathan and David had become one in this blood covenant, close, fast friends and allies, and yet David did not know that there was anyone left in Saul's household, figuring that they were all dead, that he was searching. And so this verse talks a little bit about Mephibosheth and how he came to be in Lodabar. 2 Samuel 4 and 4. And Jonathan, King Saul's son, had a son that was lame in both his feet. He was five years old when the news came of Saul and his father Jonathan's death on the battlefield in Jezreel. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it came to pass that as she made haste to flee, that he fell and became lame. lame. And his name was Mephibosheth. Now, because it was the usual practice of a 
ascending kings that came in from a different family, particularly a different line, it was the usual practice to kill and to wipe out all of the sons and the remaining relatives of the former king. And so because that was typical, and because it was known that there was a history, and that Saul had become jealous of David, um, we're going to talk about Saul in a few moments, but uh, Saul tried to kill David, and David for quite some time until Saul's death was, was living out in the wilderness and hiding out with a band of men. Though he had been anointed of God and the prophet Samuel had prophesied, David is the chosen king of Israel. Yet um, he was in every post office on the wall as the number one wanted villain. And so because of it, when Mephibosheth's nurse, Mephib, uh, we could just call him Fib, uh, was five years old, didn't re really even know his own father. But both Saul, Saul was wounded and Saul committed suicide on the battlefield, and David was, was killed in the very same battle. So both the king and the heir apparent to the throne are both killed in battle, and when the news gets back to Jonathan and Saul's house, the nurse grabs Mephibosheth and runs to save his life and flees with him. And in that run and in that fleeing, something happened. She probably tripped, dropped him, fell on him. But as a result of his injuries, he was lame for the rest of his life in both his legs. So he's a cripple. And they didn't have the, the uh, accoutrements and the uh, machinery and the equipment and the things to help crippled people. Most crippled people ended up begging for the rest of their lives, which probably wasn't very long. And so she grabs him, she takes him to a place that's called Lodabar. Now in the Hebrew, there's nothing really known about Lodabar except its name. The name Lodabar literally means pastureless or barren. And sometimes the land of Lodabar or the area of Lodabar was known as the land of nothing. Have you ever been to the land of nothing? Probably everybody in this room at one time or another has felt that somehow they have fled to the land of nothing. That they're somewhere where nobody sees them, nobody cares, they're living in complete isolation and insignificance. And so Mephibosheth is hiding out in fear of his life. He is convinced that David wants to kill him. He is living uh, in exile, if you will. He is completely unaware that there was a covenant between David, who he believes hates him and wants him dead, and his father Jonathan. That indeed they had loved each other and that they were so similar to each other that they formed a covenant between the two of them. But Mephibosheth or Fib knew absolutely nothing about this. And so imagine you're living in Lodabar, you're Mephibosheth, and you, you grow up and you are raised in shame and humiliation, stripped of the privilege of being from the royal family, living as a cripple, living in fear, hiding from King David, convinced that David wants you dead, and most assuredly is probably filled with resentment and blames David for his condition. I, sh I could have been the next king, 
Instead, I'm living like an outlaw. I'm crippled. My life is a mess, and I'm just going to be like this until I die. So there's Mephibosheth when David finds out from Saul's former servant that there indeed is a relative left alive and sends for him. So now let's leave Mephibosheth there for a moment, and let's talk a little bit about Saul and uh, David, David and Jonathan, because these characters factor into this analogy this morning. First of all, King Saul. I wish I had the time to talk about this complex character. He, um, he was an amazing guy. He was the first king of Israel. The people wanted a king instead of God as their king, and so they elected Saul. And uh, God said, well, he's the people's choice. I'll, I'll anoint him to be king. And so the anointing of God came on Saul when he was a young man and first made the king of Israel. And the Bible says when the Spirit of God came on Saul, it transformed him into another man. He was instantly sensitive to God. In fact, the Bible says he prophesied among the prophets. He was hanging out with the prophets of God. He was immediately noble. He was humble and he was brave. He was also a head taller than everybody. And uh, he was... You know, he was what they would have considered a model in those days. So he was everything that the people wanted. But in the process of time, because Saul's heart really didn't belong to God, even though God had layered his anointing on him and turned him, the Bible says, into another man, it wore off. And there's a message there that you can have times in your life when you let God come upon you and the Holy Spirit move upon you, but it'll wear off. If you don't in your heart, as we were saying earlier, lay self at that altar and truly honor him and live for him as Lord of your life. Saul didn't do that, and he simply reverted back to the way he was. But like so many that fall away, he not only reverted back, he went from being a, a king that was filled with the Holy Spirit to being a demon-oppressed madman. And when he had brought David, after David slew Goliath to his house, here was David, the sweet shepherd of Israel, who just loved God from his youth. He was everything that Saul was not. He was God's choice. He was God's anointed. He was the representation of God upon the earth for all intent and purposes. And you might know the story how that Saul would have episodes of madness and the demon was driving him crazy and he would call for David to come and David would play his guitar and sing some of those praise psalms and worship psalms that we read in the psalms. Many of them were freshly written and he would just begin to sing unto the Lord in the presence of King Saul and drive the evil spirit from him. And Saul would rest and he would have peace. But of course, it didn't last. So that's King Saul. What does King Saul represent? In this uh, message this morning, King Saul represents failed, fallen humanity. He is the human race. The human race that was brought forth to be God's king upon the earth, Adam, but has fallen and failed. And now even though God blesses him. He can't keep those blessings, and he keeps reverting and becomes oppressed and mad. The human race, it explains so much. 
The other two characters that I want to bring into this, we've mentioned already, are King David and Jonathan. I wish I had the time to talk more about the blood covenant and what a covenant really does and what it means and what its purpose is, but in the previous nine installments, you can catch all that. They're available at Faith Christian Church Online. Go to the media down, pull down page, and they're there. You just listen to them or download them. But having said that, David comes into the house of Saul. He is, in effect, Saul's adopted son. So Saul has Jonathan, his blood son, and he has David, his adopted son. David has God all over him. And he and Jonathan see each other and are immediately bound in a deep friendship. They see in one another and hear in one another the same soul. And the Bible says David loved Jonathan, but Saul was beginning to lose it. And Saul was beginning to threaten David, and he was treating David roughly, and he would drive David out of his uh, palace and even threatened to kill him. And then it just went, it finally just went to pieces, and uh, Saul was hunting David to have him exterminated. And so this was tearing at the heart of Jonathan because he had a oneness with David, more than he did his own blood, more than he did his own father. Now, Jonathan is the son of the king. He is the heir apparent. He is the next king of Israel. But when he sees David and his heart knits to David and then the persecution by King Saul, the Bible says they went and left the palace and got off into a secret place and they poured their hearts out and they agreed to form a covenant between the two of them. And listen to what the Bible says about that, uh, that, that meeting when they formed that covenant. In 1 Samuel 18.3, Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. Now what have you learned about the blood covenant? It takes two people and blends them into one. Jesus Christ is the new creation that the blood covenant that Abraham witnessed God the Father, God the Son making in Genesis. Jesus was produced by that blood covenant and we are adopted in the new creation. We also are new creations in him. He is the first among many sons and daughters. So you see that blending two into one. And once humanity and divinity were brought together in one, in the person of Jesus Christ, there was no separating them. That was forever. That was, it was over with so far as the devil was concerned. It's now just got to play out in history, but Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Well, David and Jonathan did the same thing. They came together. Jonathan took off his, his uh, sword, his spear, his shield. He took off his cloak. He gave them to David. His cloak was the royal cloak of the prince of Israel. And so David now is clothed in the garment of the king. He has the future king's sword and spear and armament. And amazingly, if anybody should be threatened by David more than Saul, it's Jonathan. Jonathan should have been threatened by David because it, for all Intent and purposes, David's popularity was rising. He could see that God was with him. And you know what? He put the pieces together real quick. Jonathan knew David was going to become king, and he could care less. He was happy. He was excited. 
That's why he made the covenant with him. He knew one day, my father's not going to be able to defeat you. He's not going to be able to kill you. You are going to rise. He saw God on David. And so he made himself one with David. Jonathan and David formed a covenant. So I can't beat this point anymore. I just want you to grab that and understand it. Hallelujah. So we see in Jesus Christ both the characters of David and Jonathan. Both of them are represented as the humanity in Jesus and the divinity in Jesus. For example, Jonathan. Jonathan joyfully defers his royal birthright to David, who's not in line to become king. He's anointed and appointed, and he's about to be installed by God as the king. So God is with David, and Jonathan makes a decision. You know what? I may have the blood of Saul in me, and I'm supposed to be king, but David's got the Spirit of God in him. And uh, there's nothing greater than that. And so he defers gladly and is happy to give up his birthright to David. Likewise, Jesus the man, as we read through the Gospels, we can see that he humbles himself like a servant. He, he doesn't make demands when he's being insulted. Even to the point of death, he doesn't fight to defend himself as he stands before the authorities of the Jewish high council and the, and the Roman governor and even the king. Jesus is not demanding that his divinity be respected or regarded. He knows that he's come into the world to be the Lamb of God. He knows he's the suffering servant. He knows that his part, the human side, the human nature in him is going to be offered up. And just like John the Baptist, his forerunner, said, I must decrease, he must increase. And so we see Jonathan in Jesus. We also see David in Jesus. David, throughout his life, even when he was being chased by Saul and he was out in the wilderness and had 400 vagabond men that were his little band running around the desert trying to keep one step ahead of Saul, he still knew he was king. And those 400 men that joined him at the cave of Adullam, the Bible says they came to him to make him king. But David, though he knew he was the king, he never denied it. He didn't shrink back from it. He let them talk of, about him as though he were the king, but he would not disrespect King Saul. God, by grace, would have to put him in the throne. He would not grab the throne like most kings do out of some kind of a conquest. Well, we see that exact same quality in Jesus. In Jesus, we see that he's willing to let the woman who is washing his feet with the tears worship him. The, the, uh, the blind man in John chapter 9 who Jesus heals, he says to him, when the man says, I know that Messiah is coming, Jesus said, I am he. He accepted worship. The heavens opened and the very endorsement of the voice of God spoken over him twice. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus didn't push back on any of that. Though he wasn't racing to make himself king, he knew that his ascension to the throne was coming. He had to go through the cross, and by resurrection and ascension, 
he would be at the throne. So we see that attitude. We see the divinity. We see that he is God when he comes into the world, when he grows up, and when he lays his life down on the cross and rises from the dead. He's man from the beginning and he's man today. He's God from the beginning and he's God today. So Jonathan and David form a covenant and they are, you know, God takes history like chess pieces and he moves them around to tell a great global and universal story of the gospel. And that is exactly what he did with David and Jonathan. He intended for David and Jonathan to be representatives of Jesus. Jesus, who was man and God, brought together in one. Let's talk for a few moments about David's unusual covenant love. Let's go back to our scripture. David, one day, the Bible says, says, is there anyone left alive in Saul's house? so that I can pour goodness on them and show kindness to them. Why is he doing that? Where's that coming from? Any ordinary king would be happy that we can't find any people from the previous administration. And, but David's looking for them, and he's not looking for them because he wants to keep an eye on them. He's looking for them because he wants to bless them. He wants to elevate them. In fact, he wants to give them back all the wealth and the property and the honor of Saul's house. Saul, who tried to kill him. Praise the Lord. Why would he do a thing like that? But he does, he says, is there anyone of Saul's family still alive? Now listen to what he says. Whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake. Why does he want to find relatives of Saul's and show kindness because of Jonathan, because he is in covenant. Jonathan died. It doesn't matter. He's still in covenant. Blood covenants don't go away just because the people that make them die. Those are passed on to children's children's for successive generations. Now, Mephibosheth is brought to King David. And he's fully expecting to be executed. Please take a moment and just baptize your mind in what must have been the emotional state and racing through the mind of Mephibosheth, what the thoughts were that were running through his mind as he is being brought. Now think, he's, he's coming from Lodabar. It had to be some journey. It might have taken some days or so. And with each step, He's getting closer. I can see when he goes into the palace, he's about to go. And he, he probably has visions of his head being taken off right in front of the throne of the king. You know, they did things like that back then. Why mess around? Just be done with it. And so he's thinking the worst is about to come. Mixed emotions. I'm living like a rat. This guy's the reason. Life is so unjust. Life is so unfair. And I bet like a ping pong ball, he's got to be back and forth in his mind, feeling sorry for himself, feeling angry, and yet scared out of his mind of David. And he's got an image of David built up in his mind. Uh, and I'm sure that it's because of uh, the nurse and her family and what little enclave of people might be with him in Lodabar. But remember, he's been living in the land of nothing. Think with me, 
What is God saying to us? This is a picture of the unsaved in the world today, like you and I were at one time, like somebody here this morning may still be. We don't realize it because, you know, there's something about humans. We're like goldfish. We adapt to the size of the water that you put us in. And uh, you can put people in all kinds of situations and they will try to make the best of it. Their anticipation or hope will never exceed the ceiling of the life that they have and they just go from day to day existing. This was, this was Mephibosheth and now it's going to come to an end. You know, he might have had feelings of uh, good, it's going to be over with or he might have had feelings of this is not, you know, I just want one day of peace. So he's being brought in before David and you know what his expectation is? David sees him and he says, Mephibosheth. Well, Mephibosheth is not going to make a mistake. And he says, your servant. And he bows as low as he can go. And David says, fear not. Fear not, Mephibosheth. I have brought you here to restore to you all the lands of your grandfather, Saul. And I've brought you here to put all of Saul's servants, the house of Ziba, at your disposal. They will work for you for the rest of your life, till the land, develop the property, bring the proceeds in to support you, and you yourself will be my new son, and you will eat with me at my table. He must have been absolutely just, what is this? Wait, somebody wake me up. Uh, I know this was the last thing he was expecting. Mephibosheth is stunned. Listen to what Mephibosheth says. Who is your servant? Now he's starting to feel ashamed. Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? Not just a dog, a dead dog. I died a long time ago. Many people that are unsaved, that are living in Lodabar, they're not running around every day and saying, I'm a dead dog, but deep inside, those feelings haunt them, chase them through life. There are many husbands who feel their life is over, but they're still married and they've got a family. Many wives that are just being ground out through the process of life. Even young people feel their life is over with before it ever starts. They may not run around and say it, but those fatalistic feelings and those thoughts of uselessness, purposelessness, contrasted against that inner God-instilled notion in our spirit that we were designed for something greater. We were made for love. We were made for fellowship. How come all my efforts to grab some love for myself, to get some purpose, some meaning, I just keep coming up empty like sand passing through my hands? Like I said, we don't go around and talk about it. Sometimes we write songs about it. But most people don't talk about it. But deep inside, it's how they feel. And that's how this guy felt. I am a dead dog. Why are you doing this to me? But when David saw Mephibosheth, he saw Jonathan. Mephibosheth didn't realize that David and his father were one. But the heart of Jonathan was looking through the eyes of David and loving his son through David. They had made a covenant and they were one. 
And David saw his own son when he saw Mephibosheth. Can you say amen? amen? Let me just make this one little observation, give you a little insight into blood covenant. Um, <clears throat> I read you the verse in uh, 1 Samuel 18 and 3 that says, Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. The covenant between Jonathan and David was made because of the love and deep friendship that they had for each other, not vice versa. They didn't make a covenant not trusting each other, but figuring the covenant would bind them together into a partnership or a deal so they would have to be friendly to each other. That's called a business deal. And those things fall apart all the time. This was a covenant of love. Praise the Lord. So they made the covenant because of love. Love didn't exist because of the covenant. So the covenant didn't make love necessary. Love made the covenant necessary. So when we think about the covenant that we have between our Heavenly Father in Christ and ourselves, that covenant we have with Jesus, that covenant isn't working to make God love you. He loves you, and that makes the covenant work. The reason the Word of God is waiting for you to hide it in your heart and bring it before the Father in prayer and act upon the covenant is because there is a willing God leaning forward in His seat towards you, stretched out with His hand, reaching out to you in love like David reached out to Mephibosheth saying, find him, bring him here so I can bless him. The love of God, the eternal love of God, the love that wrote John 3.16 is reaching out to the world today, reaching out to you. The blood covenant exists because it was nothing short of that would speak the language of God's love. The blood covenant is all about love. It's all about redemption. It's all about reunification. It's about healing the wound and bringing back together what is shattered and what has been separated. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? So I just need you to know that the covenant is about God's love for you. So many Christians, I think secretly inside, have this idea, this thought that because they look at themselves in the mirror and they see the shortcomings, they think, how could God love me? That the thoughts of Mephibosheth are in the back of their minds. Why are you, why are you saying this to a dead dog like me? Look at how I am. I mean, now so-and-so... Now now, that's a worthy person. Now, there's a Christian, but me? You see, the attitude is there. But it doesn't change the fact that before you were formed in your mother's womb, God knew you. God loved you. That it is his love that sent him into the world. It is his love that made the blood covenant. That covenant is in force because God's love can never change. Hallelujah. So, there's an altar call this morning. This is Communion Sunday. And like Mephibosheth, we were the race, if you will, of a fallen king's family, the family of Adam. Though destined to reign, sin has crippled us, 
and has carried us into the land of nothing. And that's where God found us and sent Jesus into the world to come get us. Why? Because we were worthy. Why? Because he knew we really didn't mean it when we did the things we did. Or why? Because he's going to sift through and find the ones that aren't that bad. No, because God loves us. That is the reason in and of itself. Everything else is built upon that. And so if you are Mephibosheth today, crippled in disgrace, hiding from God, full of false fears that God wants to judge you, that God has rejected you, that God is the reason why you're in the mess that you're in. Uh, you know, uh, my family, I, I, I took a wrong turn. Everyone rejected me, and now 20, 30, 40 years later, here I am. My life hasn't been what it was supposed to be, and, and doggone it, God let this happen to me. Ultimately, we, if we go far enough, most people become Mephibosheth. And if you're living Mephibosheth's life today in the land of nothing, I've got a message for you. In fact, God has sent a message to you. Go get him and bring him to me. God is calling. Come, all you that weary and are heavy laden, come, let me give you rest. You're not expecting it. You think just the opposite because you know yourself. But when the Lord gets you into his presence, Instead of the dreaded judgment that you think that God is, is waiting to unleash upon you, hear him call you to restoration. Mephibosheth, I'm restoring your father's lands. I'm restoring the servants. In fact, I am going to make you my son. And you are going to be a prince in my household and you're going to eat at my table. And oh, by the way, while you're doing that, your farm's going to work for you. How many of you would just love to have God say to you, I know you're crippled, but if you live in my presence at my table, it won't matter. Wouldn't you love to have God speak over your life and say, well, I know you're a plumber, or I know you're an airplane pilot, or I know that you're an, uh, uh, a preschool teacher, whatever your trade is, wouldn't you love to hear God say, I have commanded your farm to be run and to produce, and I will feed you at my table. Oh, children, we are living beneath the privilege for which love has sought and bought us. God loves you and is eager to elevate you. Not just lift up your circumstances, as was demonstrated with Mephibosheth, but elevate your very identity as a child of God in the presence of the Heavenly Father. That's the dichotomy of the Christian life. While we walk through the valleys of this life, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Where is our true identity? David said to Mephibosheth, and I'm going to uh, finish with this, and if the servers will come now and get ready. He said, eat at my table. Come and stay with me. Eat at my table. And all of this, the rest, is going to take care of itself. You may still have crippled circumstances in your life as a result of the harshness of life 
and the things that have happened to you. But you can rise above those limitations. You can come out of Lodabar. You can come out of the pastureless land. And you can live, and it begins at the Lord's table, living in the presence of Jesus. If you would this morning, as we are about to come and share communion together, this is what we're going to do. I'm not the judge. Thank God. I'm so glad. It's all I can do to just sort my own self out. It's not my job to sort you out. And if it were, I might make a mistake. I might see something you do that just personally irks me, and so I won't be quite as willing to see restoration happen. I might think you need to pay a little price. But see, your Heavenly Father is not like me. and He loves you with a perfect love. He understands you in ways you don't understand you. He knows you need this. You need his comfort. He knows you need his acceptance. He knows you need his love. It'll make you the man or the woman that God created you to be. This table, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, the communion meal, celebrates the blood covenant, God and man coming together in Jesus Christ. And then behind our great shepherd, hallelujah, he leads us as children into the presence of the Father. And when the Father sees us, we're not Mephibosheth, the dead dog. We are the adopted children. And he loves us with the love that David loved Jonathan and vice versa.